So what do you say to that single mom at home, Kimberly, in her earlier days with the wisdom that you've garnished over the years? What do you say to that person now? Oh, I say to her, get angry and get to work, girl. You've got stuff to do. Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, folks, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, I am grateful to have Kimberly Berry of Being Unnormal. Hey, Kimberly, how are you? Oh, hello, Mark. It's so good to see you again and be here with you today. I'm just, you know, I'm excited. So, so <laughs> again, folks, so so Kimberly is referring to the fact that she was a guest on the Dr. Joe show. Many of you have heard or seen or maybe are unaware of the Dr. Joe show, but it's another um, it's another show that I do. It's a radio show uh, that airs live on Thursday nights, but it's also on Facebook and all sorts of different podcasts where Dr. Joe and his I am approach, we talked to a bunch of people about certain stories and Kimberly was so engaging that I thought it was really important that everybody hears her story. And I wanted to share her story with you all. So Kimberly, without further ado, what is being a normal and how did it uh, come to be? Well, being a normal, I mean, the name itself was just this, this kind of play on the fallacy of normalcy. And this idea of, of being normal is something to strive or shoot for. Um, and that, you know, really speaks to, I think everybody can relate to that in some form or fashion. But in my case, it really involves my journey, not only as a parent, but my own personal journey uh, through mental health and my daughter's mental health crisis. And so I found it being a normal, gosh, in 2017. Um, and, you know, I, and that really developed because I was navigating the world of psychiatric crisis with my daughter and what I really struggled to find were resources that were well vetted, that were informational, educational, that I could, you know, take that information and run with it, integrate it into my life to help me navigate the world of behavioral mental, you know, behavioral health. And, you know, when you're going through crisis, being the caregiver, um, it's a really isolating, lonely experience, not to mention really frightening. And so the, my daughter was diagnosed with bipolar when she was seven years old and I had noticed problems, um, and I say problems, but issues, behaviors, you know, as far back as 11 months, I can remember just the intensity level of her tantrums. It was, it just didn't feel right. It was very angry. I mean, for lack of a better word. And there were, you know, kind of these red flags that were popping up in daycare and aggressive behavior. But, you know, you, they're young. And all you know as a mother is that you just have this gut feeling that something's just not right, but you can't put your finger on it. But by the time that she was five, she had written me a suicide note. And then it became very obvious that something was very wrong. Um, and she was having these escalated behaviors. And um, 
I remember when she handed me the suicide note, it's something you never think your five-year-old, first of all, is ever going to give you. It's still um, one of those things when I look back on that moment, I'm like, wow, did that really happen? And part of me wishes I had saved that note, but I, I, I threw it away. I had to, I had to physically get that away from me as fast as possible because I was frightened to my core. Um, and so at that point I had knew, you know, it's time to find a therapist and, you know, to find a, a pediatric therapist that specializes in play therapy, doing all things, those are huge hurdles too. It's not like they're a dime a dozen. They are very difficult to find depending on your, you know, your region. And so we lucked out and we found an amazing therapist and started, she started working with my daughter. Um, at the time also, my ex-husband was going through his own psychiatric crisis and had a schizophrenic uh, uh, psychiatric crisis and that ended in divorce and so you know my daughter had a lot on her shoulders and she also has a younger sister and they're four years apart and so my family was going through a lot at that time i was navigating now being the single mother of two children um one, you know, really struggling with their mental health, but I kept her in therapy. We kept at it. And by the time she was age seven, she got the bipolar diagnosis. We started medication and that was a huge game changer. And even her second grade teacher was amazed and emailed me and, you know, was like, what, what has changed the last couple of days? Like your daughter's behavior is drastically different. It was so noticeable. And we were very lucky for quite some time. You know, that was the, the mood stabilizer that we got her on was enough um, to get her up until she was about 10 and a half. And at 10 and a half, she started to have a severe depression. Um, she started feeling suicidal again. And so, of course, we take her in and they put her on an SSRI medication. And, you know, that for, for children that have bipolar, um, it can either be, again, like that lifesaver for the, the few, but it also can um, spiral and increase suicidal ideation, which it did in my daughter. And so here I was again, you know, you think that you get maybe over the hump, right? And you get back to quote unquote normal. And here we are three years later, and I'm navigating all this all over again. So for three months, it was intense depression, crying, you know, she was in fourth, uh, fourth and fifth grade at the time, working with her teachers and the educational staff who, by the grace of God, supported her um, and were so gracious with me and my family during that time. Um, you know, we were just trying to keep her alive. And so we took, we took away the medication, we gave it three and a half months, and then we saw a stabilization which then you think, okay, whew, okay, got, got over the hump, right? I'm, things are gonna be okay. And then fast forward the clock three years later, which at this point I'm going, wow, kind of every three years, I'm starting to see a little pattern here. Um, but by the time she was 13, she started having some medical issues um, that were you know, affecting her hormonal balances and things of that nature. And we got through that hump and 
Um, then I got influenza in 2016 and true influenza where um, they wanted to hospitalize me. And I'm like, well, I'm a single mom. I'm not going anywhere. I'll figure this out on my couch. Whatever, whatever steroids you need to give me, I'll be at home <laughs> watching Nurse Jackie. So, um, you know, I was down from the count for two weeks. I was really, really sick. I'm asthmatic. So it affected me um, severely. But what I didn't think about at the time um, was, you know, my kids catching it and, and my daughter did. And that was really the, the impetus to the massive psychiatric crisis that ensued afterwards. So she was having trouble breathing as well. Um, and although she wasn't um, necessarily asthmatic, um, she, in fact, she, she was a soccer player. And even I at that time was doing... Um, 5Ks and things like that. We were both pretty physically fit folk. Um, she ended up getting incredibly sick and could not breathe. And for a month, um, she had a, a respiratory rate that was off the charts. We were in and out of the emergency rooms trying to slow down her breathing. She it was she was constantly hyperventilating. It was it was it was pandemonium. We were, you know, going to allergy and asthmatic specialists and, you know, trying to figure out what was going on with her. And, you know, days come, become weeks and become months. And finally, her respiratory rate was so high, they had to hospitalize her. And so we spent four days in the hospital and they ran the gamut of tests. They did all the stuff that they needed to do to find out that there was no biological, physiological issue with her body. Wow. And this was all stemming from anxiety that she and her breathing, her respiratory system was starting to fail because she was now in this anxiety response from just struggling to breathe for a little bit from the influenza. Wow. Yeah. And so you just don't think about these things and, and the correlations and how they tie together. Um, but when we were in the hospital, they bring in a social worker and, you know, they look at my daughter and they say, you know, have you felt like killing yourself in the past, you know, month? And she said, yes. And that I remember, I felt like I was punched in the gut mm. because I'm a, my daughter and I are really close and I feel like I have a pretty decent pulse on where she was at, but I didn't see that one coming. Cause I was so, I was so focused on the physiological symptoms. Right. But obviously there was something really wrong. And from there, it spiraled. So although we were able to get her breathing in check, all of a sudden, these phobias started popping up. She became deathly afraid of bugs. I mean, deathly afraid of bugs. And it got to the point where she, couldn't, she wouldn't walk out of the house. And so, you know, I'm standing there with my 13-year-old. She's now, you know, almost becoming agoraphobic. She has this huge bug phobia. She becomes massively depressed, massively suicidal, and needed 24 by 7 care. I had to supervise her, you know, 24 hours a day. And nothing prepares you for that either, right? There's nothing in the, the parenting books that says, you know, what to do when your child is standing over you at one o'clock in the morning, sobbing, crying, begging to just die. Please let me die. I can't live like this. You feel like you have, you feel like you, all of your skin has been ripped off of you and you're just raw and exposed. And 
that whole night, I just remembered being in this constant state of anxiety because I thought if I close my eyes for one moment, I'm going to wake up to a dead child. And I don't wish that upon any parent. I don't, you know, and, and, and if, and and when you talk to your friends, your friends are so well-meaning, but there was a lot of pushback in terms of why can't you just make her go to school? Why can't, why, why is she not getting the help that she needs? Why haven't you figured out what's wrong? What are they doing with her medication? And so that further isolates you. And then of course, being a single parent, having to provide that support because I don't have any, you know, um, I didn't have a support system that could step in to help me. I ended up losing my job and getting laid off. So insult to injury, here I am with a child who is suicidal and crying all the time. She's trapping herself in her bedroom, scared of bugs flying everywhere, won't leave the house. She's on home hospital with school. I'm now laid off, I'm unemployed. And my poor youngest daughter is just watching the circus and you know the effects of the trauma from not only the poverty piece, but to have a, you know, a sibling that has a severe mental illness and her own anxiety and depression and all of that stuff that popped up. And I was just standing there going, when, is, when, when do we go back to normal? When is this gonna get fixed? What, what do I do? I didn't know. And I, and I'm, I would like to think I'm a fairly intelligent person, you know, I'm pretty savvy and, you know, I've got a fairly decent noggin on my shoulders. However, we don't have these conversations out loud. What do you do when your child is in a rage and smashing things and throwing things and punching holes in walls, you know, because those, those things, when we, when we say them out loud, then it's like, well, wow, your child is crazy. Your child is insane. Your child is a bad kid. And you must be a bad parent. You must be a poor parent. And for me, the double stigma of, oh, you're a single mom. Oh, and dad had mental illness. And it felt like a, I was living this horrible stereotype. And I just got to a point where it was just too much for me to bear. And I was trying to shield my daughter from the judgment of the community and, you know, trying to, to make excuses and mitigate for, you know, why I wasn't, you know, at work or things of that nature. And I finally just had to let go and say, you know what, we are living in hell right now. And I don't really care who knows. And I don't really care what you have to say about me about my daughter or my situation. And that was the gift of the crisis is that it liberated me to live in my truth and my daughter to live in her truth and she certainly does. And we fought for her life. You know, we spent eight months, you know, trying out different medications, you know, escalating through um, the levels of, of psychiatric care in our community, um, trying to find a, you know, a crisis therapist that was going to be a good fit, working with a team that was trying to build that, you know, that tolerance to the things that she was scared of, going outside, bugs, right? I remember waking up. I woke up one night. It was about one o'clock in the morning. I opened up my bedroom door, which lead in, led into a hallway where the bathroom was. And the bathroom light was on, my living room light was on, the TV was on, and my daughter was in the bathroom. And I'm kind of like, what is going on? And I I look in 
and I look at her and she was like, there was a, there was a bug, there was a bug, there was a bug. And I look around, there's like a roll of toilet paper on the ground. She had been picking things up and throwing them at this bug to try to get, try to kill the bug. But she was paralyzed with fear in the bathroom. She had been in there for three hours. Ugh. Cause I was like, why didn't you wake me up? She was so scared. She couldn't even come to wake me up. That's how paralyzing and, um, life crippling anxiety and phobias and depression and mental illness can truly be it traps your soul and I you know I just remember I picked everything up and you know I had to do a sweep of the house to look for any bugs and I finally lied to her and told her I found it and killed it and you know all those things that you just don't expect when you have a child and you know how to stay connected with somebody who sometimes does behave in a way that is super harmful and hurtful to you as a person when she would lash out when she would be in rages when she's damaging property you know she didn't have control over that so um, but there there is there is an effect to that and so when we were finally in like the highest stage of crisis before uh, residential care here locally, um, I remember the team came in and they said, you know, you know, how will you know if you met your goals? You know, what, what would this look like? And I was, and I said, I just want things to go back to normal. I just want normal again. I just, I just want to be able to unlock the knives and the pills and be able to get a night of sleep without being interrupted because she was keeping me up night after night after night. And when I was, you know, fast forward to when I was naming my show, I reflected back to that moment of I was holding on to this thought that if, if, if I could get back to normal, things were going to be okay. But what I didn't know then that I know now is that there was no such thing as normal and that my new normal going forward was going to be vastly different than what I had ever experienced in my life, good and bad. And the sooner I could grieve the parenting experience I thought I was going to have and accept what was in front of me and look for the opportunity within that. You know, I was going to be held captive to that suffering until I came into that acceptance. And, you know, through diligence and a lot of long nights laying on the bathroom floor with my daughter as she was, you know, feeling these waves of nausea from the side effect of the medication or throwing up or being dizzy or just all the things, you know, all of those, those countless nights, um, we were finally able to find the right, what we call the med cocktail that was able to stabilize her. And, you know, we manage her bipolar, but she has really come into her own person and is thriving and knock on wood, right? She was, you know, 13. She's now about to turn 18 and we've kept her stabilized this whole time through therapy, through medication, and from mom, me really leaning in and doing the work. And, you know, my youngest daughter, unfortunately, had her own crisis period shortly after because I was one person mitigating you know, one big catastrophe. And I didn't see the little fire stroking behind me. And 
you know, she went through her own process of suicidality. She was highly bullied in school um, and come to find out she has ADHD. And um, that, you know, that is a whole different style of parenting. I mean, I have to, I have two very different kids as most people you know, know when you have two kids, they're usually totally different. But then I have two sets of diagnoses that are incredibly different, which means two intervention strategies that are totally different for two different personality styles that are vastly different. So everything I was doing with my oldest daughter was massively failing with my youngest daughter, which caused so much strife in the relationship. And it has taken so much work to try to repair that um, and really come together and understand each other. But again, I had to lean into that. And she's doing as well as she can be, um, considering, you know, she still hasn't, you know, gone back to school and we're still kind of in a pandemic. So um, this normal, you know, I told myself a couple things when I was in crisis. Um, sometimes I don't even know how I got out of bed in the morning. <laughs> Looking back, I was like, I probably should have just stayed under the covers that day. But um, I had to get up. And I, I knew I had to show my children that you get up, you know, you get knocked down, you get up, you get knocked down, you get up. So I told myself, made a deal with myself and I guess made a deal with God. And I said, okay, if I get through this, if we all get through this alive. There's a couple things I want to do. Number one, I've got to create something. I've got to find a way to create some community or get information out there that can help somebody that is just like me in my position. Um, because I don't want anybody to feel like this. I don't want anybody to feel so alone and judged and misunderstood. And you and were, I, and you were alone. You had nowhere to turn. You had no support. You didn't no. know who to speak to. No, my, her, well, my daughter's therapist probably became my best friend. <laughs> um, I'm like, how are you? But, um, but I, yeah, I felt very alone. And so I said, okay, I've, I've got to do something about getting really good vetted information about mental health out to the masses. And number two, nobody talks about the effects of poverty and really the, the, the intergenerational effects of poverty and the acute effects of poverty, which we have, we're also experiencing. And so I said, okay, if I ever get in a position where I can help another family, I'm in. I don't ever want another mother to be sitting on the edge of her bed on Thanksgiving night, sobbing like I was thinking, oh no, please not Christmas. I can't, I can't afford Christmas. How am I gonna tell my kids I can't afford tree or Santa didn't care or he accidentally missed us, I can't, you know, that level of pain still resonates every day in my core. And so those were the two commitments I made. And fast forward, once everything stabilized and we climbed out of the hole, um, I was able to, to, to execute on both of those things. And so the first thing I did was find, uh, I founded Project Holiday Hope in 2017. And what that is, is it's a Christmas giving uh, program that I created. And I work with um, crisis psychiatric mental health providers here locally that are working with families just like me, <laughs> low and no income, I was one of those families. And we, per, we, we find donors to fulfill their wish lists. And so there will not be a child in psychiatric crisis that doesn't have to wake up to Christmas too. And I don't want that mom to stress about, oh my gosh, on top of everything, how am I gonna get Christmas? 
So we've been doing that. Um, this will be our fifth year this year, and I'm really excited about that. Congratulations. And then, uh, huh? Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, um, that's for me, that's the real work. And mm -hmm. then uh, a few months after Project Holly Hope ended, I was like, well, then now what? Like, I was kind of like, okay, well, what do I do? And I just kind of got this like tap, but, like, maybe you should start a podcast. Yeah. And I went, nah, no, 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 no. And that was in, like February. And then there were two back-to-back -back suicides. The first was Kate Spade and the second was Anthony Bourdain. And that was really the impetus to me as I was watching on social media, these conversations about suicide, I went, wow, a lot of people are missing some of the bigger points. We've got to have better conversations about saving lives. And so I jumped into action and I taped my first podcast episode and that was three years ago. And uh -huh. so, yeah. <laughs> which is amazing. Um, and I've been so blessed to be having conversations with, you know, affected families, celebrities, experts in their diagnostic fields. Um, I've been able to have these conversations and open up these dialogues and be able to help families. And now I get to help families. I volunteer on crisis teams as a, you know, family support. You know, I've, I'm working with youth, I have coaching programs, I get to help parents, and all of this has now kind of snowballed into the bigger mission, which was always to expose, to educate, and empower, and, and I never, you know, I, I don't forget where I came from, and mental health is always an issue in my house every single day, because these diagnoses don't go away, but how we manage them and how we set our children up for success. That is one thing we can control in a world and in, in, in raising our children where so much has been taken from us and out of our control. And it's the awareness that I think you're bringing to the table that's so vastly important. I know that COVID <clears throat> and folks, if you're listening to this, it's May, 2021, depending on when you're listening to this, coming out of COVID, the COVID era, I think mental health is on the table. And it's something that uh, people are, are willing to discuss now and are more open to discussing what's going on with them, which I think is great because as you know, it's so very necessary. And you know, we appreciate you putting your heart and soul into that. And that's the Being Unnormal podcast, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and that's a good point with COVID. What was interesting for me, dealing with everything that I had to deal with with my family, I kind of already understood what it was like to be isolated in my house for months at a time, to not be able to go out and do things or have this kind of normal life. What I, you know, what I saw finally was a little bit of understanding from maybe what parents such as myself, had been going through for years. COVID hit everybody else, but there's a subset here of the population that maybe wasn't battling a virus, but we certainly were in a fight. And we have already given up some of those luxuries of, oh, let's go do a movie or go on vacation or do those things. 
you know, for families like, like, like mine, right, we have already missed a ton of milestones. We didn't get the proms or the homecomings. We didn't get the, um, the college tours. We didn't get the driver's license suite 16. We don't get those things. You know, anxiety can steal a lot of things from children around those big, you know, what we would consider milestones for children. And so what like, you know, going through the grieving process and the acceptance process that I had to go through back in 2016, when COVID came, I was much more equipped to say, okay, this just feels like a continuation of everything that I do. But globally, locally for my friends, for the first time, they started to have more insight and understanding of what we had gone through because all of a sudden their senior, their high school seniors weren't getting graduation ceremony and they felt that sting. And I wanted to say, yes. Now imagine the sting across the board. You've missed one milestone and a big highlight, but for us, we have missed everything. And so I'm hoping with that, that opens the door to a lot more empathetic building conversations because a lot of people thought, oh, okay, yes, COVID, yes, mental health, I'll just go get a therapist. Well, now you see there's shortages of therapists. You can't get care. You know, everybody is booked or if it's self-pay, you may not be able to afford to pay for it if you lost your job. It's not as easy as people think. It's not just I get on a pill and I get fixed or I go talk to a, a therapist and in three months I'm fine. There are complexities to the barriers of care that really, you know, make my, my life a lot harder, you know, as a parent. And I'm hoping that now people may see like, look, some of these biases that I had, right? When we talk about that exposure piece, exposing bias and misconceptions and stigma, maybe, you know, we got to look at this a little bit different and, and maybe I can let go of maybe some previous judgments I've had. And maybe I can have a little bit more understanding of the fact that it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So what do you say to that single mom at home, Kimberly, in her earlier days with the wisdom that you've garnished over the years? What do you say to that person now? Oh, I say to her, get angry and get to work, girl. You've got stuff to do. <laughs> That's what I say to her. And I also say, you know, I mean, I say that to myself because one of my impetuses of change is anger. If I get pissed off enough about something, I make the change, hence the podcast. But um you know, but for the single mom out there in general who's sitting at the edge of her bed with her hand, her head in her hands and tears rolling down her face in that feeling of utter despair that is gnawing from your gut from the inside out, I tell you that there is hope and you've got a friend and ally and an advocate in me. You are not alone in this and you are worth giving yourself the moment to reach out and ask for help because there are people out there that understand what you're going through and will not reject you. So there are resources and, and support groups for people in that situation. Yes. You just got to know where to find them. And that can be some of the challenge in itself. So starting with being a normal, how do they get in touch with you in order to get in touch with some of those services? Absolutely. You can find us online at beingunormal.com. That's our website. We've got some great resources on there. 
Um, we're on Instagram under the being unnormal. So find us on Insta and follow. We're in Facebook. Um, under Being Unnormal, we have a Facebook page, and we have the Unnormal Nation Facebook group, which I just started a few months ago. We're trying to grow that community, so come join us and get a little unnormal with us. I love that. I love that because I don't think there is such thing as an is normal either, and uh, I'm I'm with you on that. Now, it doesn't feel normal to ask you this question now, but it is a question that I ask all of our guests because yes. the, the hope is, is that someday, maybe 10 years down the road, I'll get all of our guests together and we'll have an event. Maybe it's a networking event. Maybe it's a get to know you. Maybe it's, hey, we all have something in common. We were on that same podcast. But what I do envision is having a karaoke set up. So Kimberly, you're next up on the mic. What are you singing? <laughs> Um, well, my first response to that, of course, is like to spare all of your guests. If you truly love them, you will not give me that microphone. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, this, the, um, the go-to song, the, the song that I've done in karaoke abysmally, uh, was Brick House. <laughs> so, oh, that's a good one. I love it. I, I, I love that song. I thought it'd be easy enough. Um, however, no, there are nuances in that song that makes it really difficult. And uh, the audience let me know that. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how, you know, singing in the car and singing in the shower is uh, is one thing, but then actually trying to follow along with the words and stay with the, the tune is, is totally another thing vastly different <laughs> uh, it's, fun. it's fun though it's our it's our icebreaker we try to get everybody to do it uh from Bye. the dr joe show we used to have a tradition pre-covid where we would go to a local restaurant across from the studio and it was one drink one song can never sing the same song twice and we would always try to get the guest uh to sing a song too and and i am not a karaoke singer in fact dr joe's um kids are all very classically trained in in music and and voice and uh one of the daughters was in town and I, I came off the stage pretty proud of my performance. And she goes, uh, hey, uh, good stage presence there. <laughs> oh, man. And I was like, ooh, I love you. I love you. You're like, so, well, you just need about three more drinks and I will sound fantastic. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Kimberly, thank you so much for sharing with the world. Thank you for creating and, and following through with your your prayers and 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 starting this this wonderful resource for people because I think it's so so very necessary and again they can find you at being unnormal pretty much anywhere on any platform in any place being unnormal Kimberly Berry thank you so much my pleasure anytime thank you Mark hey thanks for joining us today if you enjoyed the show be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Secure Title. Secure Title helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers, and sellers with all of their title, settlement, and escrow needs. Secure Title, S E C U R I T I T L E.com, where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. 
podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.